Hello and welcome to Talk Gnosis, uh, your favorite YouTube show slash podcast about Gnosticism, the esoteric, magic, mysticism, esoteric religion, whatever else we feel like talking about. <laughs> uh, I'm Deacon Jonathan Stewart. I'm joined by my co-host, uh, Bishop Lady Peterson. Hi, Bishop. How you doing today, Deacon? Oh, as good as one can be. Um, as always, as we've been saying a lot, as good as one can be for the the end of the world. Um, yeah. The good thing about being a Gnostic, and uh, I haven't been involved with uh, Gnosticism as long as you have, but I'm, I'm coming up on a, on about a decade, and it's it's good preparation for the moment. Uh, b- belonging to a belief system that talks about uh, being imprisoned <laughs> in a negative plane <laughs> of reality. Uh, good preparation for uh, for what's happening now. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, you, when you you know, it's, it's one thing when it's sci-fi. Yeah, uh, it's quite another when you're actually experiencing it. In some cases, quite literally. Uh, and I don't like the overuse of that word, but in this case, people are imprisoned in their own homes. In many cases, you can't yeah. you know you you can't leave, and in some cases, uh, that's being enforced by law enforcement. So yes, it's we we're we're in quite a time right now quite a time. It's also funny that you mentioned science fiction, because I often, you know, I've been working from home, I've been working remotely, it's it's me and my partner and my cat, we're spending lots of quality time together, I'm sure I'll be found of many stab wounds, uh, but I've often been saying to, to my imprisoned partner... Stab wounds my, and the cat gnawing on you, yeah. Okay. That's right. That, uh, <laughs> that, that this is... You mentioned sci-fi. Like our present reality is so much like every cyberpunk dystopian novel from the '90s that it's it's almost yeah. it's almost hack. Like it it lines up just a little too closely. So, uh, you know, I recently treated myself to the full DVD collection of Blake Seven. Oh, I you, yeah. I don't know if you ever saw that. Oh, I have, it, but like one or two episodes. You know, the yeah, late it, was, it was it was you know, and it was a, it was here, and it's very hard to find. But it, yeah, it's definitely this dystopian thing. I decided to treat myself to the whole collection, and I'm watching it, and it's like, oh, <laughs> it's like watching a documentary <laughs> or the news. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, so t- tonight we have a very special guest. It's uh, me and Bishop Peterson, uh, <laughs> our favorite guests. Back for another question and answer. We're one guest. We're we're actually just one half of you know the the symbiotic you know male female dualistic. The synergy. Yes, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) One guest. The synergy. We asked for our uh, for audience questions. Uh, We got a bunch of doozies. You really gave us a workout this time. Yes. Uh, Uh Yeah. Yeah. We have we have a very intelligent, literate, uh, smart. Uh, fan base who have who have really gone in depth this time. So we're going to do our best. Uh, as per usual, uh, of course, we're, we're both members of, of separate churches. Uh, anything I say is just my personal opinion. Uh, it, it doesn't represent my entire faith community. And of course, even if it even if I am, it's coming from me, so even if I was speaking on behalf of something else, which I'm not, of course, you figure out your own answers. And um, because uh, Bishop Laney is the head of her own church, I guess anything you say would be canon. Uh, tell that to my clergy. <laughs> uh, they, 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 I, I think there would be a great uprising. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but no, anything I say is my own opinion, and that can change, and it often does. 
it often does. Yeah, we could just do these. The, the good thing about these questions is we don't even need to get new ones because we could just do it again next month and we'll have totally different answers. So I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll launch right into it uh, with the first question, which is from Lux01. Uh, how do you think history and the trajectory trajectory of the church might have changed if Valentinus, that's how I like saying his name, uh, it's also Valentius or whoever you want to say it, I like saying Valentinus because it reminds you of Valentine. Uh, how might the history and trajectory of the church, capital C, have changed if Valentinus had become Pope? You know, I... I... I'm hesitant to answer the question because it's a very historical question and I, I'm not really comfortable necessarily making that kind of prediction when there are a lot of people who know a lot more uh, about the history of that period and that sort of thing. I, I have to wonder if the church would have, um, if, it, if that had kind of formed in that direction, would it have succumbed to empire the way it did? Would it have become, you know, united with empire? And I mean, there's another uh, science sci-fi plot, you know, um, it, it, that oftentimes they do focus around empire. Um, and we saw that, you know, we've got Jesus who is railing against empire. You, you read uh, the revelation of John. And I mean, again, it's this anti-empire, anti-empire. And if you look at various Gnostic writings, and again, there are multiple schools uh, of thought. They were not in agreement any more than, in, than you and I are in agreement. Um, but there is often that real sense of empire as evil. And they understood, if you understand a demiurge as this blind ruler that uh, proclaims to be the leader of people that he doesn't even know, there's empire for you. Exactly. Um, so I, I have to wonder, would there had been this enmeshment between empire and church? Uh, and, and that's, I think, where the real, the real evil is, when people rail against institutional religion. I sometimes think that maybe they're railing against the enmeshment of religion and empire. Exactly. And, and of course, it is a in many ways, an unanswerable question, but uh, going back to when you mentioned sci-fi, this is what you'd call an alternate reality. Um, yeah. and, and for those who don't have the background, uh, Valentinus was a, a great Gnostic leader for one of the, the largest of the, the schools of Gnosticism, and there is a story that he had almost become the Bishop of Rome, which would have made him the Pope, which also shows you that the this was very on in the first century, um, that these, these lines between Gnosticism and proto-Orthodoxy and different schools of Christianity and religion were were very thin. Um, supposedly, he did have a, a huge impact both on Gnosticism and Orthodoxy. There is a story that he really introduced the the concept uh, and the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, so I, I, I think I just have to agree with, with Bishop Laney, and my answer would be, I, I don't think the church would have become enmeshed with empire. But what would have happened afterwards, maybe a different religion would have become the religion of empire and would have uh, crushed the, the Church of Valentinus, right? And then, you know, we would be... Uh, the, 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 the Mithraicism would have become the, the main religion. <laughs> uh, who knows? Um, and would that have been such a terrible, horrible thing? Yes. What would yeah. have happened if, if what we call Christianity remained uh, a living but minority religion? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and there's and plenty I think... of religions that have, have existed you know, that are much older than Christianity. They are living minority religions that continue to this day. 
Um, yep. Many, many, many. And there's some that are major world religions as well. So w what would have happened? It's an interesting question. Oh, it's definitely a fascinating question. I'm glad they submitted it. And uh, uh, we'll, uh, we'll plug ourselves into our alternate reality matrix. And, you know, there are actually serious scientists who believe that alternate realities are true. Um, yeah. that they're they're lined up next to ours, so maybe we can peer into the one where Valentine is to become Pope. Uh, before I, I do move on, I mean, if you're looking, uh, both you, Luxo One, and the audience is, is looking for a more in-depth answer, I, I think some of the answers would be in Elaine Pagel's classic Gnostic Gospels, because she does... She doesn't quite do an alternate history, far from it, but she does talk about how Christianity would have been very different, had very different beliefs, that would have impacted the societies that it shaped in different hierarchical ways if the Gnostic schools had become the more dominant forms of religion, right? Uh, the more dominant forms of Christianity. So she does talk about, well, you know, maybe perhaps Christianity would have had a, a better relationship with women and more women leaders, and it would have had this, and it would have had this, and it would have had this impact on society. She does go into that a bit in the Gnostic Gospels. Um, some people do see that book as outdated, but I, I love it. It's I, it's I think it's a classic for a reason. It's very easy to find. It was a big New York Times bestseller. So if you haven't read that and you're looking for a more in-depth answer, uh, track that classic by Elaine Pagel. Down. It's a pioneering work. Yeah. Um, it's, it's definitely, an, you know, it's been rightly subjected to criticism, which is what you do with scholarship. Exactly. And a lot of people don't understand that scholarship is a process. And uh, particularly people like Karen King and Elaine Pagels were definitely pioneers. And, you know, they wrote their stuff and then they've come, gone back and forth with it, as have other people. It's, 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 been, it's engaging work. Yes. Yeah. And it, it's the way that it should be. Yeah. Um, Okay, so moving on, uh, how can one differentiate between temptation and divine beauty? And then there's sort of uh, the, the writer, which is uh, the questioner, which is A. Brown, 1027, continues, as a young lover of nature, it's been difficult for me to tell between what is, quote unquote, good about the physical realm, between what, it, what is, quote unquote, bad or destructive. Uh, Want to jump into that one, Bishop? Well, okay, my first response is, Two words, murder hornets. Yes. <laughs> um, which is actually very mean-spirited of me. Uh, you know, I, I've struggled a lot with that because I like nature. I like the outdoors. I like animals. I like, I'm like. i always talking up the nature preserve that the city put near my home. I live kind of on a great residential area, ugly commercial strip, but they gave us our own uh, nature preserve and it's, it's absolutely glorious. So I, I'm very actually more that I calmed down and, and started really working with that question. Um, you know, a lot came and, 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 you know, there's different, again, there are different perspectives. Uh, there are some, some Gnostics who believe that, look, you know, you're born into matter as a way of refining who you are. Your soul is being subjected to refinement. Matter isn't necessarily bad. It's not necessarily evil, uh, but it is something that we struggle with and against. Uh, we work, try to work within it. We try to push against it and resist it. Uh, and that's what forms your soul. So that can't be entirely evil. Uh, and then there are other Gnostics that I know who basically say, look, um, what you're seeing is a glamour. The beauty that you're seeing is a glamour. There's this ongoing uh, process of death and suffering and devouring and pain and the, the you know the, the strong devouring the weak and it's relentless and so when you're seeing things and everything seems to be pretty you're just seeing uh, what you've been conditioned to see you're not actually 
showing any real knowledge of what nature is. Um, and then I kind of started thinking back to some periods of my time. I was listening to some um, some some tunes from the from the eighties and the nineties, reminding me of some what I thought were very happy days. And then I began to meditate on the songs and the times that they brought up. And I began to realize what was going on was perhaps not as pretty or not as nice or not, or should not have made me as happy as it did because there was some real dysfunction there. So one thing that occurred to me is um, that there is this thing called wisdom that we can acquire over the years. And, and, when we look back on things that have appeared to be beautiful or appeared to be pretty with an understanding of what was going on there, they may not be that way. Now, I know I'm veering a little bit from nature here, but right now in the U.S. Uh, and in Canada and in some other places, there is a real uh, reckoning with history going on. Mm-hmm. Histories that on one hand, we grew up with in, in the U.S., the red, white, and blue fireworks, celebrations, um, and there is an, this history is now being put forth as not being as beautiful as we thought it was. And that's the kind of knowledge that can develop when one is willing to allow oneself uh, to be shaped by wisdom. So I would say that there's a couple of different levels here. There, there is nature, the natural world, the non-human world. Um, and that can be its own form of trap. Again, murder hornets mm-hmm. and viruses. Um, and then there is that also relooking of our uh, looking at our own uh, mythologies that are born of human behavior. And again, going back and saying, was this really as beautiful as you thought it was? So uh, that those were some of my musings from yesterday. I'd be curious to hear what you have to say. Oh, for sure. Well, just to to build on what you're saying, there's there's nothing more gnostic than talking about the development, the testing, and the growing of wisdom, right? That is the Gnostic myth. It is about wisdom, Sophia, falling into matter, partly, right? And the growth therefrom. Um, so just putting an asterisk on what you're saying, because I think that is spot on when it comes to a very Gnostic outlook. And, and again, I'm going to be saying this a lot to show these these are very difficult questions. Uh, we're they're glad good questions. That, but they're I got good very questions. angry oh. when I got them yesterday with less than 24 hours. And uh, <laughs> Deacon Jonathan was the sort was the target of my wrath, for which I do apologize. Um, but no, I mean, these are these are the kind of questions, again, they've actually been giving me a lot of food uh, from my own meditations and ponderings. And so I thank those who are asking these very difficult questions. Yes. Oh, they're very, they're very excellent questions. Very deep. So uh, you can tell that that these are um, some people who are very engaged with with Gnostic yeah. topics. Yeah. Um, so how can one differentiate between temptation and divine beauty? This is not just a Gnostic um, problem, but something that the great ethicists and philosophers and religious thinkers of thousands of years in all cultures have been grappling with, right? Um, and, and I guess I would say, you know, that there is, there is that saying uh, uh, from the Bible, you know, Satan, Lucifer can, can appear as a great angel of light. Uh, sometimes uh, the beauty can entrap us. Uh, and we live in this really tricky world where, okay, so um, 
having a couple glasses of wine with some friends on a hot summer night, having some deep conversations, bonding. That's one of the, in my opinion, um, what, one of the greatest uh, experiences that, that a human can have. And, and if you don't drink, obviously, you can still have your own version of that experience. But it's uh, it's wonderful. And you could really, uh, souls could really connect. Uh, ideas can really be exchanged. So that's that's beautiful but if you have that same situation where you're drinking a couple bottles of wine every night then that exact same act has now become something that is that is bad right uh making love having sex in my opinion is uh pretty awesome perhaps becoming a, a sex addict or a sexual assaulter is a bad thing so not perhaps i would say <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to being the, the assaulter yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's pretty definite yeah, um, yeah, pretty definite. Yes, I, 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 I was being murder a bit, hornets after them. Yeah, yeah, being a bit facetious with the perhaps there. Definitely, definitely <laughs> a bad thing. Definitely a bad thing, watchers and listeners. So, so we live we live in this very strange world where where the exact same thing. Uh, well, they're not the exact same thing, but but this thing that gives us pleasure uh, and makes life worth living can also be destructive, right? Yeah. So, how do we differentiate between temptation and divine beauty? It is looking at developing this wisdom again for. Uh, am I taking this to an extreme? Uh, am I doing it in moderation? Am I hurting myself and others? So I, I think that's that's an important thing to dif differentiate between temptation and divine beauty. Now moving on to the to the nature part, and we've talked about this on the show before, and, and I think Bishop Laney had some some really deep thoughts about this. Uh, and again, hashtag murder hornets. Uh, Putting the, the nature is very complicated, and, and I think Gnostics, in my opinion, should should appreciate the beauty of the world around us, even if it is a trap. I, I don't think it's entirely a glamour because in a lot of the Gnostic myths, the world is at least a copy of something beautiful and wonderful. Uh, it's, it's it's a flawed copy, perhaps a bad copy, but it's still a copy of something pretty awesome. And in many schools of Gnosticism. Divinity is trapped within everything. So you can sort of look at the world around you and appreciate, uh, and I know this sounds like a paradox, that it can be a trap, uh, that there's murder hornets and parasites eating the eyes of children. But at the same time, remember that it, it is a prison for divinity, and it is a copy of something that is beautiful. So you can look at that sunset and that tree and 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 what have you, and, and have even mystical experiences. I'm sure we've all been in nature and been moved by the power of it. So again, the, not a clear answer kind of depending on the situation and through the the goggles and the eyes of wisdom for differentiating uh and and working with with what we have um so that's my answer for that thank you a brown 1027 uh we'll move on here given how there's so much between our tiny world and the heavens is it possible that there could be multiple demiurges and if so would they exist trying to dictate their own material realities or would they try to mingle and mess around with another's creations? And that's from Dreaming Serpent. And uh, Bishop, do you mind if I go first on this one? Please. I mean, it's a great question. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Awesome question. Well, I, I will say that we can't find this perspective exactly in some ancient Gnostic thought, but we do kind of find it in some of the schools because in, in, in some of the earliest layers of 
Jewish Gnosticism and Christian Gnosticism, we don't often have uh, a central demiurge figure. Uh, in many of the early schools, it's evil angels or fallen angels, or sometimes it's angels who are neither evil nor fallen, but who are quite far from the unknown father, from the unknown parent, far from the center of uh, true divinity, and are a little bit mixed up and bad at their job. Okay? So we'll just go with evil angels. But these evil angels are the ones who create reality and trap us here. And in, in this ancient thought, these angels are all equal demiurges. And something else that's sort of borrowed from the cultures around them and already found in mystical Judaism and mystical Christianity is that the, the universe is kind of like an onion with different layers. Um, and each of these evil angels, uh, you know, they made the world together and they run it, but they're specifically in charge of one of these layers or levels or heavens. Okay. So th this question actually does kind of sound like some of these, these early versions of Gnosticism. So could there be multiple demiurges? Yes. And not only that, they do have their own levels their own realities that they're in charge of. Um, and would they exist trying to dictate their own material realities or would they try to mingle and mess around with each other's creations? Sure. I mean, why would you be, uh, uh, if that's the kind of being you are and the kind of universe you're living in, why would you just be happy with just one level? Um, and of course, this, this is linked to Gnostic ascent because you have this idea, even when you have the central demiurge and then he has his archons under him, that you're trying to get through all these different levels that have been set up to trap you here uh, and get to... Um, the supreme uh, uh, reality. Uh, and before I stop talking, uh, I, I should have taken some time to research this, but I know in, in even within the school of Valentinus, which we already talked about, there is also, that also splintered into some different schools, as always. Yeah, that's, that's what happens. Yeah, it's what happens. And as always, Gnosticism is always so complex. And I know one of those schools, and I'm very fuzzy on this, perhaps I can find a research um, link and put it in our, our notes. They, they did believe in, in a couple different demiurges, um, some of which were more good than others, and some different levels of demiurges. So I, I know that was also a belief of some of the schools of Valentinus. So that's, that's me on that one, Bishop. I think that's fantastic, and I, I, you know, I think you just put that incredibly well. Uh, the only thing that I would personally add is that there's also the, shall we say, um, demiurgic God talker in our own heads. Yeah, you know, so many people find themselves being tormented by their own image of God. That they, you know, if you grew up in a family or in a church or a religious organization in which uh, God is this punisher, God is, a, is constantly trying to torment you, telling you to not do the things that you want to do or telling you to do things that you, you know, you know, you know that sort of thing, uh, telling you to do things that you don't want to do and, and um, you know, trying to deny you joy, telling you to stay in an abusive relationship, um, telling you to, you know, to, to not seek justice. A lot of people struggle with that. And to me, that is it, that is demiurgic uh, in, in, in its own right. It may not necessarily be the, an intervention by a semi-divine, a divine or semi-divine being, but it may also be that first layer. You were talking about onion layers. Um, there is that, that first layer that many people um, on this path have to work with, and that is our own psyche. Yeah. which in and of itself reflects an oppressive empire 
um, and may harm. And as a result, we have thoughts and ideas um, that are harmful to us yeah. and to others. And that may be one of the very first things we need to work on. You know, when what, there's an old esoteric maxim, you know, first know thyself. Mm -hmm. And so that, that, that is present as well. So that, that's the only thing I would have to add. Oh, and that's a great addition. Amen, Bishop. Uh, before I move on, I'll also say for, for some of the uh, viewers out there and listeners who, who aren't aware, you, you know, what Bishop Laney is saying sounds very modern or almost postmodern or psychological, but I think that perspective is exactly what the ancient Gnostics are going for. Uh, they, they're always using psychological metaphors and describing the divine realities in terms of thought processes and giant brains. And for me, particularly with the Sethian material, the secret book of John, it's impossible not to read it as both a manual and a description for what goes on within the human mind. Now, is it just that? Absolutely not. That's why it's more than just the psychological text, right? The the text is saying this is what's going on inside of your own brain, and you got that personal demiurge as egoic force that is partly shaped by uh, the, uh, the human condition and by toxic societies, and you got to deal with that first. And then, as above, so below. That's also reflected in our exterior reality. So to bring it back to this specific question, uh, you could say that there's six billion demiurges, and they're all messing around with each other's creations because we all create our own reality. Realities, you know, um, the, the the demiurge in our head creates our own reality. So that that could be another way of looking at it. So that's 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 six billion, seven billion of them wandering around. Um, okay. So the next question is, do we have an idea of how many hylix exist in this world, and are they really no more than finite material? And that's from Leo Rio. Hmm. All right. Uh, I think, Deacon Jonathan, uh, maybe you want to explain what Hylic is. And, <laughs> yes. And uh, just go through the whole thing so that people who are listening, I mean, I would be happy to do it myself, but you do a very good job of explaining things. Yes. Okay. So the ancient Gnostics, I should have written this down, but many of the ancient Gnostics thought that uh, people were born as one of three kinds of people. And that is uh, in many ways immut immutable. There was the Hylix, the Pneumatics, and the Psychics. Okay. The the Hylix are almost uh, pure matter. They they perhaps don't even have the divine spark in them. And then the I'm going to mix this up. The psychics and the pneumatics. I'll say the psychics. The psychics have um, a spark of the spark, and they have the potential yeah. to develop into divine beings and gnostics. And then the last category are the gnostics. They're born of a full divine spark, and they have a better chance of becoming fully divine. A better chance of becoming uh, enlightened. They sort of have inherent qualities born to them that allow them to become bodhisattvas, saints, ascended beings, however you want to phrase it, okay? Yeah, pneumatic spirit, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so to start with this, I, okay, uh, I've said this before at the show, but it's one of my favorite rants, and hey, this is this is our show, we don't have a guest. The We have this idea, it partly comes from theosophy, it partly comes from all sorts of places, that, that there was once... A, a perfect religion that exists outside of our uh, present values that we can recover that it that has no moral problems and doesn't have to be adjusted for present times okay this is a very common idea that even if we don't believe that we believe it a lot of us believe it and we go looking so we're like well you know buddhism must be a perfect religion it doesn't have all this uh, bad stuff in it this racism the sexism then you go and you read some early buddhist texts and you know you're 
your eyes pop out because some of them are horribly misogynistic, right? Uh, I'm not picking on Buddhism. Uh, this goes for any faith that is not from right now, and it'll also go from any faith that's from now when people are looking at it a thousand years from now, okay? Every faith, even our precious Gnosticism, even though I think it's the best one, is, is going to be um shaped by the culture that it arrives in it's going to be shaped by the moralities of the day and it's going to have some awesome ideas and it's going to have some very bad ideas that that we have to struggle with as modern people okay so a lot of people when they first come to narcissism they hear about narcissism they they think that it is this this perfect religion the original form of christianity before all the bad empire stuff came into it um and I think that it is pretty awesome. I, I, and sometimes I don't even think it's a religion. I think it's a meta-commentary on religion. Uh, and in that way, always engages and surpasses other forms of religion, even though you know, I in no way think I'm superior. Uh, and I think all religions are paths. Um, so this idea of people being inherently one of these three things and it being sort of predestination and you're born this way and the uh, hylix cannot change it no matter what because that's what some of the ancient gnostics thought not all of them just some of them thought that you know the hylix were completely lost um and were just basically matter or kind of like robots uh they didn't have the divine spark uh pure creations of the demiurge i think that's a very dangerous idea right and mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's a bad idea, and I think we should uh, make sure that it is out of Gnosticism forever. Now, how we can adapt that idea, and what a lot of ancient Gnostics do, is they actually see modern humanity as always being in flux, sort of shifting between these three states, right? So perhaps we start off as uh, Hylix, then we become Psychics, then Pneumatics, or perhaps it's a little bit more unstable, and we sort of move through these three qualities. And perhaps some of us do have attributes that push us towards one or another, or we've been brought up in a certain way that pushes us up towards one or another. So I, I guess I, I just said we should get rid of the concept, but when we think about it like that, um, and we reinterpret this concept, which I think is another important thing for modern people people to do with ancient religions is we don't want to abandon every concept and throw it in the garbage and start from scratch. It's important to uh, reinterpret them for the modern day. I think this is a good way for, for working of these concepts. And as far as I know, it's it's what just about every modern Gnostic does. It still uses this terminology. I, I have yet to meet a practicing Gnostic who strictly believes in a Hylic psychic and pneumatic and thinks that the, the Hylics are uh, without the divine spark and are lost. I have I'm, I'm sure there's somebody out there, but I haven't met them yet. And I think this idea that we move through all three of these states of being uh, and that it's more of a symbol is um, uh, uh, a good one. So to answer uh, Leo Rio's um, question, since I don't really believe in, in this category of Hylix, how many are there in the world? Are they really more than finite material? Well, they're not more than finite material, and I don't really believe in the concept, so I can't say how many there are. But if we sort of adapt the concept, and we think of Hylix as being the state where we have no exposure to the Gnosis, well, then that's the majority of the world, right? To, to, to use perhaps some Gurdjieffian, Gurdjieffian language, right? Uh, most of us are asleep. Yeah. We don't even realize that we're asleep. Food for the moon. Food for, yeah. the, moon. Food for yeah. the moon. Yeah, we have no idea that we're automatons. Uh, this is the vast majority of people. And this is me, you know, almost 24 7, 23, 59, 7. <laughs> Maybe I have that one minute a day.
<laughs> maybe one minute a week into uh, of deeper insight. So uh, uh, what do you think, Bishop? You know, I think um, our friend uh, and, and colleague, uh, Bishop-elect Scott Rosbach, I think it's him who came up with the idea of that these are not people, uh, categories of people, but categories of states. Mm. And that we can be high lick sometime and sometimes we, we, we are psychic and sometimes we are pneumatic. And we can fall back and forth, back and forth between these states. And, uh, you know, and then it, it affects every, impacts every area of our life. Um, scripture study would be one thing. You know, you, you, you read it as a highlight and, and, and you get a, what may be a very literal interpretation. And then you can move deeper into maybe psychological insights. And then, of course, you can glean the real spiritual food from the text. So, um, I've often found that to be a very useful way of thinking. Like you, the idea of predestination—you're, uh, you know, you we're going to sort you off into types here, and and that's it. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, I find that to be, uh, shall we say, distressing, yes. uh, to say the very least. Um, it, it, you know, that to me is, is is very very rigid. I can see where it would be a useful explanation for people who are feeling uh, put down and want to believe that they are marginalized and misunderstood uh, because they're superior to everybody else. And I think that can become very attractive, but I, I think that there's probably more, more to it than that. What I would say is that I do think uh, there are some people who possibly through a combination of genetics and environment and personal circumstances and when you were born and that sort of thing may be due to early development more sensitive than others. Yes, um, I agree. And, th and that can sometimes, there can be certain personality types and then that can happen. Now, one of the curious things about Christi early Christianity is it was described as a um, religion of women and slaves. Yep. And so where I'm going to look at it is I'm going to take a slightly different, I'm going to come at this a little differently, is that if you are born in a context of oppression, for example, um, you may actually be far more primed to be a psychic or a pneumatic in this particular tradition because you are looking at um, empire and greed and dominance um, from the perspective of somebody who is actually being crushed underneath it. Yes. So that um, okay, you know, if fine, we can we can we can turn this, we we can look at these these uh, states, um, these we can look at these ways of being. But I would also like to shift that a little bit, and note that early the early Christianity, which I would put early Gnosticism, I would lump that all in together. Um, in fact, uh, there's a little twist there, and it's not the the people who are running society, who are perhaps the more likely. Uh, to be the pneumatics, the um, in fact they're more likely to be the hylix, whereas the pneumatics may come from those who see things for what they are, or have exactly. the capacity for seeing things for how they are. Yeah, and and I think the, I think that is a very plain reading of a lot of the Gnostic texts that that do adapt this framework. Right, is that the people in power are going to be the hylix for sure? Yeah, yeah. Okay, moving on. Is Sikhism the continuation of Gnostic Christianity? That comes from the takeover too. I'll, I'll jump into this one. Uh, the quick answer I, I would say would be no. 
Um, I'm not uh, an expert in Sikhism. Uh, I did do my undergrad in religious studies. That was a long time ago. I'm very old. Uh, but what I remember of Sikhism, for those who, who aren't familiar with the faith or Sikhism, um, Sikh, Sikh, however you want to pronunciate it, is it is uh, an Indian religion that comes from the late medieval period. Um, and it is, this is a very crude way of saying it, it's not quite accurate, but it sort of combines aspects of both Islam and uh, Indian subcontinent religion. So some aspects of Islam, some aspects of, of Hinduism, to, to put it in a, in a very crude way. I'm sure a lot of Sikhs wouldn't put it that way, but uh, it, 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 and it does have these figures of, uh, of gurus who sort of come out of this tradition and sort of um, uh, uh, have ideas and perspectives from both. Okay, so we do have um, a, a strong mystical tradition of Sikhism. So is Sikhism the direct continuation of Gnostic Christianity? You know, it, it, in a in a family sense, did the Gnostics move to India and become the Sikhs? Uh, I doubt that. Now. Does uh, Sikhism have uh, some mystical aspects that resemble um, uh, Gnostic Christianity? The, do, do Sikhs have Gnostic experiences? Uh, are some people out there reinterpreting the Sikh scriptures in a Gnostic way? For that, I would say 100%. Right? To be a Gnostic, to have Gnosis, to have Gnostic experiences, to have mystical experiences, you don't need to belong to the religion of quote-unquote Gnosticism. Uh, and Sikhism does have uh, a very strong mystical tradition. It even has esoteric traditions, uh, a lot of Western Kundalini yoga, which um, is quite popular among esotericists and occultists. The that that is it comes out of Sikhism. Um, so that's that's my answer for that. I know very little about Sikhism. I I know you know I know of the religion. Um, I know very little. Um, what I would like to say, as we've talked about on the show before, uh, disaster and emergency management and preparation is my jam. It's one of my various interests. And what is I do I can say is that the Sikhs uh, today are very active in feeding people who have been victims of disasters. Mm. Um, this has uh, got some very nice publicity, particularly out in California uh, when there's been serious wildfires. Um, the Sikh temples immediately went into action and were providing hot meals constantly, yeah. offering hot meals, free hot meals to people who were trying to escape the flames. Um, they have a, you know, a, a remarkable uh, presence and reputation for uh, for caring for people in emergencies. I believe that there is a religious tenet about feeding the hungry. And uh, I think that that is one of the things that we can look at. That center is what I would consider to be the center of any good religion is right action. And yeah. that means caring for the vulnerable. Uh, where it, whatever that vulnerability must is, you care for the vulnerable. You meet their needs to the best that you can. And um, Sikhs certainly here in the United States, and I'm sure around the world, clearly do that. Yeah, 100%. Okay, moving on to a question from Samuel James Humphrey. Is the archetype slash character of Satan just a metaphor of humanity's animal nature, or does evil exist as something separate from humanity? So for that, I would say yes. Uh, what do you guys think? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, um, evil is certainly, I, and it, yes, uh, evil is, I think, in some cases, a value judgment. Um, you know, again, is the murder hornet evil? Evil. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, the the causes in tremendous suffering. 
um, from what I've heard, um, and has certainly managed to to scare people terribly. Um, but is is that is that evil? Now, some hardcore Gnostics, some hardcore Sethians might say, yeah, it is. I mean, it's just it shows you just how evil nature is. I mean, again, now we're getting into a, a pretty serious philosophical area area here. Are we saying that nature itself, well, okay, that's nature. It's natural. You can't do anything about it. So it's not, it's not good. It's not bad. Just what it is. Or are you going to say, no, nature is evil. This is the product of evil. The Demiurge created this distorted copy that is causing immense suffering that nature itself is evil. That's a really good question. Yeah. And it goes against, I think, what a lot of people, uh, certainly people with my kind of upbringing, and I think probably yours, where nature is separate from human impulses. Human impulses are human behavior. Well, that's evil. But non-human things, animals or non-human life or non-human forms like, like rocks and mountains or viruses or whatnot, we're, we're not going to give that any morality. We're just going to say it's just what it is and it is what it is. Um, but if you wanted to take a very hard, hardcore, anti-materialist view um, of a hardcore Gnostic who says it's all, and this is all evil, it's going to say, no, you can't separate that. You yeah. can't separate human tendencies from what else is going on. Humans are a product of this evil, nasty, suffering system. But the difference is humans have a choice, have a way out. Yeah. We have potentially that spark that could could lead us out of this, but this is all evil and nasty. So it's a good question. Now, as far as Satan is concerned, um, you know, that that's, um, is it an archetype? Is is Satan, uh, the you know, the, the god of this world? And who is the god of this world? Is, is that a demiurge? Is it, that, that, those are some other questions. And it would depend on the Gnostic school, and it, it would depend on the Gnostic school today. I, I, um, I tend more to the idea that that Satan is actually something a little bit different from a demiurge. Uh, a, Satan for me is the accuser. I'm more likely to put Satan uh, as that uh, distorted view of God that we off, often keep in our brains, not necessarily the creation of the imperfect uh, spiritual and physical realm, but more or less uh, the accuser. Uh, and, that, and that I get from some of the from the from the Gospels, where we have the Holy Spirit as an advocate, versus um, uh, Satan uh, as as an accuser. Yes, that's where I'm coming from. But uh, I, I think I think it's an interesting question. Oh, for sure, yeah, and it's 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 one that uh, the, you know we can go around and around on, but again has has been addressed and struggled with in different forms, even if you're not going to put Satan in there by all the great thinkers of the world. So, on, unfortunately, Samuel James Humphrey, I'm not going to be able to give you a clear, definite answer on this. Um, it, it is funny because I, I am agnostic. I am perhaps more dualistic than than some, but I think there is a real danger of seeing evil separate from humanity and as something separate and definite, even if it is, okay? Even if it is, because then if you if you say that this thing, this person, this act, this belief is evil, just 
no stops, no asterisks, um, th then that, that can lead to a lot of problems. So I think we always, and it is difficult, we always have to be interrogating, we always have to be looking at circumstances, we always have to be in flux with dealing with evil. And that is, that's tough, right? And I wish I could just point out a bunch of things and say, that's wrong, that's, that's evil, you know, this is good, it's never bad. Um, it would definitely make my life a lot easier, but that's, that's all I can say on that um and uh and i do like uh satan as the accuser that that's what satan means the word and just like uh bishop Lady was saying particularly in in the hebrew bible in traditional judaism uh satan has not fallen uh satan is actually an angel in god's court um and and god's court is viewed at imagined literally as as a courthouse <laughs> um well, if you look at the book of job i mean if you look yeah. at the book which is considered to be one of the oldest books yes. in the canon uh, it's very amoral, and what is going uh, on there is psychopathic. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know. And so, if we're going to be talking about uh, notions of a demiurge, uh, and who you know, who clearly is not, does not have empathy, and who just does what he wants because he can, well, you, you're you're right there. So maybe you know, maybe a Gnostic study of the Book of Job, uh, again, comparing it a bit with Jung's work and that sort of thing, could be kind of interesting. Yeah, that'd be fun. Well, maybe we'll do it on the show. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, moving on. Is classical Gnosticism, the Demiurge, the Archons, the whole myth, what have you, an attempt at trying to make sense of a Gnostic experience inside a mostly monotheistic religion of its time? And that's from a Jason Mermel, a Jason Mermaid, a Jason Mamel. Uh, I'll jump right into that, Jason, of course. Yes, he's a friend of the show. He's been on, yes. on before, he'll be on again. Uh, quick, quick answer for that for me is yes. Um, and um, one of the theories about sort of the, the origins of Gnosticism is, uh, and this is from April DeConnick, uh, blessed be her name, St. April DeConnick. Uh, in the Gnostic New Age, she talks about uh, educated Platonic Jews around the time of Christ who are living in Alexandria, who are becoming interested in all the religions around them. They, they get initiated into the mystery religions of Egypt. Okay, so they're they're going into this this dark temple at midnight, and they're being blindfolded, and they're going in, and they're and they're having these powerful mystical experiences, uh, a Gnostic experience, and this Gnostic experience changes their views on their religion and makes them reinterpret their mythology. So what's happening is is that. They're, they're having an experience of the divine that is so powerful, it makes them reinterpret what the divine is. Um, and they don't, they know inherently, they believe that parts of the religion they've been brought up with are, are true and accurate and uh, are a good guide for you know living their lives. This mythology um, is, is valuable to them and they see it have practical value. But because of the experience that they've had, they have to readjust the mythology. So when they have this powerful experience of what true divinity is, they have to readjust the myth because God has now become bigger than some of the the tiny ideas of God that they had believed or had been taught before. Okay. By the way, this is not this is not a, a criticism on Judaism, which has a great mystical tradition, just perhaps a, a particular framing or understanding of Judaism. So so God has become bigger than than what they thought God was uh, because of a Gnostic experience that they've had in these temples. So they have to rewrite the myths. So that's how you get 
the demiurge, and then you have the true god above the demiurge, right? It, you're still keeping the the primal myths, um, but you're reinterpreting them, you're making them work, uh, and you're the other important thing about doing this is not just adjusting it because you've had an experience. It's also then going to help other people, right? Because not not everybody can get to that temple in Egypt. Not everybody is going to be initiated that way. Not everybody is going to have this powerful Gnostic experience. But if you readjust the myth, it becomes a map for other people to get to where you went. So quick answer for that is yes. <laughs> uh, do you got one on that, Bishop? I think you just did a great job. Thanks. I think you just did a, did, did a great job. And um, I, I am, it kind of brings up the question, okay, um, so why the revival of what was essentially uh, a dead religious movement uh, in modern day? I mean, of course, we have, I mean, and the thing is, is that, okay, yes, we did have the discovery of the Nagamati Gospels, which, you know, and it happened at a time when the world was really rapidly changing. Uh, a lot of our institutions and beliefs uh, were being, you know, reconsidered and plowed under, and there was new things springing up. Uh, so there was that. But of course, there were other Gnostic scriptures that had survived and were still available. Uh, and of course, there were the heresiologists who had, you know, had in many cases preserved a fair amount of the teaching uh, pretty well. And we know that, you know, there there was that you know, various esoteric movements that borrowed from all of this. So. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of asking the question today is, uh, is, it, is an interest in Gnosticism and trying to, if, if not turn it into a full-blown living religion, at least borrowing from it in uh, various alternative religious traditions, is this its own expression of something that has happened? Um, and I, something that's happened in, in the psyches of people who are often living in countries that are largely secular. Mm -hmm. um, what is that process as well? And, and, as, and many people are increasingly feeling uh, distance from their government. We were having protests, not simply here in the US, but all over the world. Uh, you know, we, we have nothing on France. <laughs> uh, for what you know, from what they've been getting up to, when you have the firefighters going out and setting themselves on fire and then beating up the police officers, hey, you know, <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah, that's good. I mean, that's that's a real that's hardcore. I gotta say. Yeah, that's pretty hardcore. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's pretty hardcore. So, um, you know, so it's, it's it's an interesting, you know, why then, why now? Yes, and uh, and, I, and I will uh, finish up with this question that that, that I agree that I. I there is obviously solid reasons why Gnosticism is coming back. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's not just a coincidence and it's not just a fad and it does have to do with conditions here on the ground. And hopefully it has to do with uh, Sophia. <laughs> hopefully, oh. hopefully she's hopefully she's in motion uh, because of, of what's going on. Which brings us to our last and final question. And we're almost out of time, but I hope we can get this one in. It's Even though it's it's a deep one, it's a long one, but we'll do our best. Uh, it's from another friend of the show, Stuart Cardell, who uh, we often see on social media. So so uh, thanks, Stuart. Uh, we appreciate your support, and we always love uh, uh, seeing you in all in all the regular places. Uh, but uh, and obviously, I'll get you to answer this one first, uh, Bishop. Uh, of course, does, you will. Yep. Why does Gnosticism still blame the female for causing all the trouble? We cause all the trouble. That's where we go. See, we have all the power. You see, when you <laughs> you blame us for everything, we are, we're actually the only people who are in power, and then that just shows how powerful we are. I, you know, I think that there's a couple of things here. I mean, I think that um, you know that, that this was uh, perhaps a, a tendency, and we still have a tendency today um, to 
uh, you know, to sometimes blame women for the misbehavior of men. I mean, that, that you know, and we'll talk about the poor guy was a dope or dope. She influenced him. But I think that there may have been more going on here. Um, yes. One may have been, you know, we talked about these are psychological processes. We have the notion of the male as the active uh, generative principle that, you know, that has a thought. And then you have the forethought and the Barbello, and and then they the two of them form that pair, and they're able to, um, and then all of a sudden there, there's that reproduction. Uh, but there is that sense that the that the female is created by or is the passive, the male is the active. Whether you like that or not, you know there it is. Uh, and you'll talk to some people today, and they'll say, well, this doesn't actually hold with physical men and women. It, it's about you know it's about a, a spiritual uh, principle. I don't know that I entirely buy into that, but that's what folks will say. But this, this, there's a, there's a notion of what male and female is, yeah. and so the tendency here is to for you know to, well, the male was primary, the male was first, so therefore has headship, and therefore has priority. And anything bad that happened after that, that you know we're going to somehow or another insert the female who tried to take, in this case, tried to take control over the situation herself. So, you know, Sophia decided to go exploring. Some people have said, you know, that she refused to have sex with her mate. Um, others have said, you know, she, she spawned, she wanted to, she made it her own descent. She wanted to check things out, which, you know, if you think about it, um, it wisdom is often born of a descent. Yes. If you you know she she here we have a a wisdom that has not yet descended so that's an interesting question in and of itself how do you become wise without first making a descent how does yeah. wisdom exist without that exactly we know you know we talk about age you know with 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 great age comes great great wisdom now we know that's not not always the truth but there's almost always when a person is wise there's almost always there's been a descent. Um, so whether, you know, it, I think that this may be some to a degree, just plain sexism, yep. uh, and others, it's also their, their notion of what the hierarchy is and ought to be. Um, and that when this principle decided to separate from the genitive principle and, and the, the, the patriarch, uh, that's how the trouble got started. And this is the story. I mean, this is the story that we're left with. I know, you know, some people, Elaine Pagels thought that, you know, Gnosticism may have been more of an egalitarian religion in the beginning that has been questioned and challenged and the debate goes on about that. Um, I, I think that you know, this is the tradition. This is what we know. We can receive it. And it doesn't mean we can't make any changes to it or that we can't work with it on our own. But again, we're receiving this at a time where there have been, you know, worldwide efforts to bring about gender parity. So it's probably not surprising that we're looking at something here and identifying the problem. Yes. Yeah, exactly. We got to grapple with, with the traditions. And, and what I'll say in closing is that, you know, if you take Secret John, where, yeah, you could say it's it's the female's fault, it's Sophia's fault. But uh, in Secret John, it's 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 female figures that redeem us, right? It's uh, it's Epinoia. Uh, and in some versions of the myth, it's a higher aspect of Sophia. Uh, you have Eve in, in the Adam and Eve story in Secret John. You know, Adam is a dumbass and, and Eve is, is the redeemer, the genius, the one who sees through it, the one who takes 
taste of fruit um, that allows uh, Gnosis to descend upon humanity and gives it to Adam. Some people have called Eve the first Gnostic saint. So, so it, is the female blamed for causing all the trouble? Like, yeah, you have the myth Who's of the fall. Who's doing the blaming? Who's doing the blaming? You, you have Who's the blaming? have the the myth of the fall of Sophia and secret charm but then you have redemption by the female aspects uh you have redemption by the higher Sophia redemption by Epidoia redemption by Eve and, and of course you know famously the if you're looking at sort of misogyny in in religion the, a lot of the Gnostic groups reinterpret the the Adam and Eve story where it's where Eve is the hero right Adam is the dumbass and if 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 we had just gone along with the male principle, gone along with Adam, we'd just be stumbling around with our our eyes closed in in that garden. So I will only say one thing: in the canonical Genesis, uh, Adam remains the dumbass because it makes it clear in the story that she she's talking to the serpent. Yep. She takes the fruit, eats it, gives some to her husband with her. So he was standing right there watching this whole thing while yep. his wife is engaging with this serpent, <laughs> and um. You know, this is what happens. And then when God says, you know, what happened here? Well, she gave me the fruit. And a lot yeah. of, and a lot of even very conservative preachers, I in my experience, point that right out. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, it's in the capitalistic Adam tradition as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's that's a great way to end. Um, we I, I have to start remember to do, to do this also at the beginning of the show. But you know, I hate filthy money. I hate to ask for it. I hate using it. But apparently, you know, we are still in this world system. Uh, we haven't ascended to the pleroma yet. Uh, uh, we do rent an awesome studio out of Chicago who uh, makes this show amazing. Uh, even when we when we weren't renting a studio, we always had bills to pay. So yeah. just to run the show, it unfortunately does take money. And I know that you, uh, the viewer, the listener, listen and watch to a lot of podcasts, and I know they all beg you for money, but I, I hate to do this, but we got to do it. If you can support us on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash Gnostic. It can be for as little as a dollar per show. Uh, I do need to update the Patreon. Uh, what you get right now is your name at the end of the show, and you get all our uh, content early. You get it up to sometimes longer, up to a week earlier than everybody else. Um, and if we can think of something that's not exploitive, some other treasure that we can give you, we will. Uh, but we didn't want to lock any content behind paywalls, right? Because we right. don't think that that is the right way to to do things um but uh if you can support us that would be amazing and i know that these are hard times so if yeah. you if you can't do that dollar then please just just share the show share it on your social media and if you like, don't want to yep thank you like and subscribe so please like subscribe leave good reviews on the podcaster of your or sorry podcatcher of your choice um and, and share the show and if you don't have social media or don't want to share it on social media just um email it to somebody who you think yeah. might like it yeah, we appreciate it. Yeah, so uh, that's us signing off. Uh, thanks again, and thanks again for all the awesome questions. Feel free to submit questions to us for future uh, versions of this show. Uh, we'll be periodically doing this. You can email them to me. You can put them in the, the comments and questions uh, slot below. You can leave them on our Facebook, however you want to get them in. So uh, thanks, everybody. Thank you. Take care. Bye.